0: This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics.
1: This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass.
0: We are behind every
2: country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a
0: physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Benjamin Day.
1: I'm Julian Mason.
0: And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs healthcare. So we have a really important, in terms of the scope of our healthcare problem and our healthcare spending, uh, an issue we we don't actually talk as much about as we probably should. You know, I think virtually all Americans know that our healthcare system is broken and that the system is like working against us as patients. But in any story, we need a good villain, and who is like the villain of the story of our broken healthcare system? You know, who's responsible for maintaining the healthcare system and who is using it to profit off of patients? Now, if we had to like round up the usual suspects, you know, Benicio del Toro and uh we've got <laughs> Kevin Spacey in the lineup. Uh we'd probably have health insurance companies and Big Pharma in the usual suspect lineup, but what about hospitals? Obviously the biggest chunk of the healthcare spending pie. In my experience, many people like the nurses and doctors who care for them. And sometimes we associate hospitals like with those caregivers, but hospitals are, you know, equally responsible for the crazy costs of healthcare. Are they equally responsible for our poor access to care? You know, what about the medical debt that feels like kind of a ball and chain on our personal finances? So, fortunately there's a new documentary out that kind of sets out to answer this very question, what is the role of hospitals in our healthcare system? It's called American Hospitals: A Healing a Broken System, and our guest today is Wendell Potter, who is an associate producer on the film. Uh Jillian, do you want to introduce Wendell?
1: Yay. Um Wendell, we love having you on. This is so exciting.
0: Thank you, Jillian.
1: Wendell is the former vice president of corporate communications for the health insurance company Cigna pausing for booze there. Um, uh, But in 2008, he resigned and he hung up his pitchfork for good. And he became one of the industry's most prominent whistleblowers, testifying against corporate practices in HMOs in front of the Senate, the US Senate. And since then, he's become a prominent advocate for Medicare for all and universal healthcare and a much better person. Welcome, Wendell.
2: Thanks. i I appreciate that, and I. Uh, I do claim to be a better person. So thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> just want to
1: just want to give you some emotional support on that. So all right. So when we were thinking about this episode, one of the things that I was thinking about because I have a an unfortunate background in American literature. I always think about this story from the Grapes of Wrath, the John Steinbeck novel. There's a farmer who's being dispossessed from his land and someone from the bank comes and uh, tells him, you're gonna have to get off this land, it's owned by the bank. And the farmer says, actually, I'm just going to shoot you. And the uh, guy from the bank says, well, you you could shoot me, but there are other people from the bank who will come again. There's just going to be more people. And the farmer goes, well, then I'll shoot them too. And the guy says, no, no, because the bank has shareholders. And eventually, they're going to come or whatever. And uh, this goes on for a while. And finally, the farmer gets so frustrated. He's like, listen, I just need you to tell me who am I supposed to shoot here? <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I think about that a lot when we're thinking about kind of identifying the villains in these very complicated stories about our social systems. So like Ben said, right, we talk a lot about the kind of evil masterminds in the health insurance industrial complex. Um, but again, we usually focus on the insurers and the big pharma goons. So well, the question I have for you now is who are these hospital goons and why do we have to add them to the list of people we hate?
2: <laughs> well, well, those guys are part of the rogues gallery because they charge so much. They charge far more than, than they should, far more than hospitals in any other part of the world charge. And there's just no rhyme or reason for a lot of the charges, except to see what they can get away with. It's not all hospitals like this. There are some hospitals that uh, are doing the right thing and uh, have prices that are far more reasonable. And in the whole scheme of things, I would certainly put health insurance executives in a category all by themselves, way up there at the top of the bad guys. But uh, healthcare care providers need to have scrutiny as well, too. Note it. Drug companies have been scrutinized, been the focus of a lot of attention on Capitol Hill and Washington broadly and in the media, but hospitals, as one of the people in the, in the movie says, have largely gotten away uh, scot-free. They've just not been scrutinized very much by anybody, by politicians at any level, by the media. And by employers, for that matter, or by advocates, all that much. So we—it's—it's—it's it's, it's time.
1: How have they managed to get away with being let off the hook? How how have they? Why why is it that we don't think of them as automatic villains here?
2: I think two or three reasons. One is because their facilities are in our communities, and we've grown up knowing them, seeing them as uh, places that are essential for us in case. You know, if and when we we need those facilities, they are able to have more of a community presence than executives of insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies, and they have, as a consequence of that, uh, good connections throughout their communities with nonprofit groups, with politicians, with local officials. So, I think that's one reason. Another is there's just been so many good reasons to go after insurance companies than <laughs> than we have. You know, there's, I've often said that there seems to be only room for one entity in the barrel at one time in Washington, and uh, <laughs> insurance companies have their time in the barrel—not nearly enough. Drug companies certainly have had their time, but now it's time to take a real close look at the behavior and practices of a lot of hospitals in this country.
0: Yeah, and in in your former life as a you know working as an executive in a health insurance company. Um, if, if there's anyone in the country who kind of be more than happy to point the finger at hospitals, it's probably insurance companies. I I feel like whenever there's a debi- debate about high costs and things like this, every every healthcare industry kind of points their finger at the other industry. It's like pharma <laughs> points at health insurance insurers and hospitals, hospitals point insurance and vice versa. So, but that probably gave you a pretty good perspective on how hospitals operate. Um, can you say more about you know, this principal crime you say hospitals are guilty of, which is uh, driving up costs as much as they can. How, how does hospital pricing work?
2: Yeah. And, and I, I might say that it's very not well known, but I actually, uh, my first job in healthcare was uh, head of uh, communications for a hospital system. Uh, in, in Tennessee where I'm from. And said,
1: wow. You really got in everywhere you could. <laughs> yeah, you
2: were like, <laughs> like, this hospital
1: is bad, but I could do worse.
2: <laughs> so I, I've got all kinds of experience there. The thing is about hospitals is that they often are able to charge, as I said earlier, what they can get away with in terms of uh, how much an MRI might cost. If you get an MRI at the at a given hospital or how much a surgery might. And even within the same zip code, you can find hospitals that charge very different things, very different prices for the same same thing. And that doesn't equate to quality of care. There's no correlation. And insurance companies have not been able to really bring those costs down for a couple of reasons. One, they don't have the ability to do that. There are a lot of hospital systems that have gotten so big and so important that they almost have to be in an insurance company's provider network. Uh, so they're a must-have in many cases. And that gives hospitals special status. And they and insurance companies find it more difficult to negotiate lower prices with those guys than other hospitals, smaller ones, for example, and the ones that are out there all by their lonesome in small towns in this country and rural areas. So insurance companies are incapable of really negotiating with them. The other thing is, Hospitals are not all, I mean, uh, insurance companies uh, at the end of the day don't really care as prices go up, whether we're talking about drug prices or hospital prices, because we don't even have a public option in this country, uh, let alone Medicare for all. We have to use these guys, these insurance companies, one way or another. And so they just typically jack up premiums and out-of-pocket costs to cover the extra costs that hospitals are charging. So it's a a game, frankly, that works well for both hospitals and insurance companies. And the rest of us are getting screwed or not being able to get it in in various ways, either uh, having to pay an arm and a leg to get the care that we need at a hospital or not getting the care that we need because we just simply can't afford it. We're uninsured or we're insured and have such high out-of-pocket costs that puts our family's finances in jeopardy.
0: Right. And and can I ask you another follow-up question? Because I think when people see their bills, if you have health insurance, you're going to see a huge number that is the price of whatever service you got. And then you'll see a reduced number, which is what the insurance company actually paid for it. And it looks like the insurance company has negotiated a massive discount on your behalf. Like what are these crazy prices? How do they, first of all, is that a real amazing deal that you've got from your insurance company? And second of all, what happens when you're uninsured and you don't have You see that crazy number without a reduction. What's the real lived impact for people in these two different categories?
2: Right. That's a very good question. And when you see those statements or those EOBs, as they're called, or explanation of benefits, you might think that your insurance company is doing a pretty darn good job negotiating uh, what seems to be dramatic decreases or reductions in what hospitals charge. The problem, of course, is that what hospitals, their list priced has no bearing in reality, they know that they're going to, it's going to be negotiated down. So they, you know, the game is set it as high as you possibly can, knowing that insurance companies have to claim some victory here. So that's how the game is played.
0: So the prices are literally fake. These prices, they, in in 90% of the time, they don't expect to be paid those prices for the product. Absolutely right. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. And for for people who have no insurance, they're probably at the greatest disadvantage because they unwittingly could assume that they have to pay that unrealistically high price. Now, what people need to understand is that if you have no insurance, you can negotiate. You can try to figure out if you can get a lower lower price. And in many cases, if it's a nonprofit hospital, they have to provide charity care to a lot of folks who don't have money. So that's a requirement to, to maintain Nonprofit status is providing X amount of charitable care. And that's one of the things, we a point we make in this movie, that they have that obligation, but in many cases, if not most cases, they're not fulfilling that obligation, they being the hospitals.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is like the opposite of a free market. They, they've created prices that are literally paid by a tiny group of uninsured people who might not know that they can negotiate the price down or, or don't have the wherewithal to, or have a lot of money.
1: I mean, so, <laughs> most people just don't think of like the hospital as a place where haggling is about. Right, exactly. But actually, yeah. it totally is.
0: <laughs> well, that's right, who would think? Who would like, buy who a used would car. So although this is not the focus of the film, Wendell, I did want to ask you about you know the hospital industry is, has changed quite a lot in the last 20, through, 20 to 30 years uh, in, in many different ways. But one trend has been the growth of for-profit hospital chains, like Hospital Corporation of America. So, how have you know for-profit hospitals managed to grow so rapidly, and you know what are the consequences of that for patients? Uh, do you know? Yeah, and and some
2: of the hospitals that are for-profit have been acquired by some of the big for-profit entities. I worked for a nonprofit hospital system in East Tennessee, but I was recruited by Humana, where I worked, where I went to Cigna at that time. Uh, Humana was largely known as uh, the operator of for-profit hospitals. It was at that time the biggest owner and operator of for-profit hospitals. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, while I was there, the company decided to spend those hospitals off, sold them ultimately to HCA, which Mm -hmm. is the biggest operator of for-profits, for-profit hospitals based in Nashville. So there has been a lot of growth in for-profits, but when you look at uh, nonprofits, there's not a lot of difference in many cases in how they operate. Some of them are just as greedy charge just as high a price and sometimes are even more outrageous in what they do chasing down people who owe uh, their hospital bills. Some of the big Catholic hospitals have been headlines for going after poor people who can't pay their their bills.
0: So uh, that was in the Bible, though, right? The debt <laughs> yeah. <and> collection <laughs> that's right. That's right. It speaks that's highly true. of lenders, I believe. I, I yeah. guess that's right. I, guess that's right. I, <laughs> I
2: asked uh, Sister Simone recently why Catholic hospitals uh, actually are providing less charitable care across the board than other nonprofit hospitals who are not affiliated with the church in any form yeah. of fashion. And she said it's because the guys took over from the nuns some several years ago. And so Oh shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I swear it. And I, there's probably some truth to that when the nuns were kind of pushed aside by the, the guys in suits. MBAs and yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah, that's that's kind of what, what began to happen.
1: Yeah, we really we saw that so much in the Caritas system in uh, Massachusetts as well. Yeah, that's really this is a great topic for a future show as well. <laughs> but to, to sort of get into what you're talking about about like Catholic hospitals, I thought one of the most interesting parts of the movie was where you go into these nonprofit hospitals, non-for-profit hospitals, right? And just because you know we think of like nonprofits as being pretty benevolent, healthcare now the organization that Ben and I work for, for example, is a Somewhat benevolent nonprofit, so, but you wouldn't really know it from my paycheck. Regardless, how are these nonprofit hospitals making money, right? And and who is actually making the money? Do you think you could just go through that for our listeners, real quick?
2: Yeah, the the nonprofit hospitals, and again, as I'm you as we're talking and I'm using some terms, I don't want people to think that every hospital is like this. But what we have seen in recent years is the consolidation among hospitals. Hospitals have bought other hospitals. They've really bulked up. And these are, the, I think, the problem children here we've got because they've grown so large that they they now have, uh, when they're negotiating with insurance companies, more leverage at the negotiating table. Uh, one of the reasons why they bulked up in the first place because insurance companies were doing that. So hospitals decided to do it in self-defense. And now this is, this is what we've got. This is the free market system at work here. In healthcare, it's what happens. But uh, the on the nonprofit side, they don't call their excess profits; they call it excess earnings or something like. I've forgotten what what the term this most prevalent is. But it's essentially profits. It's it's it's. They don't go to shareholders. They're often I think is referred to primarily as retained earnings, and they use that money to uh, pay themselves quite well, the top executives, and also to build New buildings that aren't needed in uh, places that don't need them. Shiny new buildings with all the bells and whistles in the rich suburbs while they're closing hospitals that serve poorer patients in the cities and in rural areas. So that's what's gotten completely out of whack here. got for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals moving into areas where people are wealthier and uh, moving away from... Places where people don't have so much
0: money. Well, that's a, a perfect segue to my next question because I am obsessed with this this TV show, New Amsterdam. It's a, a fictionalized TV series. It's very well written, but it's about a, a hospital CEO who, you know refuses to, who swoops in, refuses to operate his hospital based on profit motives. And he implements all these radical and kind of creative reforms to support patients.
1: He's also very handsome, like of way course, more handsome course. than any hospital. Yes. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. And he's, you know, he's fighting the, the healthcare bureaucracy. He's fighting the insurers. He's fighting his own board. So you, you've said a couple of things. I mean, you've made disclaimers here and there about, well, not all hospitals are like this, but you've also just said that, you know, hospitals that are serving low income communities in rural areas tend to be shut down by their systems I mean, is it possible for their, because this, this feels like something where hospitals are a little bit different from the insurance industry. I mean, insurance companies kind of have to practice healthcare denials, a lot of the things that are just really immoral in our healthcare system, but they have to, to kind of survive in the insurance marketplace. Can a hospital do all the ben, sort of benevolent things? Can it not be aggressive in chasing down medical debt from its patients? Can it provide charity care and also serve rural or urban areas, underserved people with a lot of uninsured folks or Medicaid patients and still survive? Or is that is it the same situation where you kind of have to embrace some evil practices in order to just survive, much less to to make it in, and expand?
2: Well, you know, the, the movie ultimately makes a point of saying, no, they don't have to be the bad guys all the time. There there are some, some good actors, good, good players. I think it helps, uh, Jillian, to your point of having a, a CEO who's got a, a good heart and who's a good looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> <Right.
1: Yeah. laughs>
2: but, and not, not every hospital has that, I guess, right? <laughs> but there are hospitals that really are trying and, and are, are doing the right thing. There are some hospitals that are using a lot of the earned excess, if you will, to try to improve the, the health of people in their communities. And there's a term called population health, which is uh, quite in vogue these days. And, and hospitals uh, that have departments that are focused on that, in many cases, some of them are doing really good jobs in helping to address this, another term that's in vogue, the social determinants of health. So there are hospitals that are devoting some of the, the money that they bring in to, to do that. Others are not, not so much. So it varies place to place. But uh, maybe we'll get to this now or later. But there are things that policymakers have done in at least one state that have uh, uh, made it much more likely that hospitals are good guys. And that You're they're talking
1: not. about Texas, right?
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> you no, know, uh, actually not. <laughs>
1: no, 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 I'm no. afraid
2: not. I'm afraid <laughs> not. That was some misinformation you got there, I'm afraid,
1: Probably um, came from our governor. He's a fount <laughs> right. of misinformation. No, but you're talking about Maryland, obviously, with the kind yes. of cost setting that uh, costs, yes. cost regulations that they put in place, right? That's
2: right. That's mm-hmm. right. Which used to be common in this country. It was what every state used to do. And then uh, the Reagan years happened. And then there was a move to deregulate just about everything. And that hit the hospital business. And most states, uh, Got on that bandwagon, the deregulation bandwagon, and uh, we've seen the consequences. And what we're talking about now is largely a result of the fact that we just threw it out the window and said, uh, let the, you know, the magic hand of the market do its work, its magic, or the invisible hand work its magic, and seeing what that magic looks like. It's, it's, it's terrifying for a lot of people. But uh, Maryland was the, the state that stayed with it. And over the years, what Maryland has done uh, is embrace both an all-payer system and a system of global budgeting that has made all the difference in the world. And you have a, a system of hospitals, or it's not a system in hospitals, the, the, systems, uh, the hospitals in Maryland, they're not closing like they are in other states. It's, uh, there, there have been fewer hospital closures in Maryland than any other state. The prices have been stabilized and are actually lower than they are what they used to be, and uh, lower than in most other states. And, and the all when, when I say all payer, it, what that means is that all of the payers, if you will, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, a private insurance company, uh, uninsured person, everybody pays the same thing. You don't have this wild, ridiculous situation we were talking about earlier in which people are paying different things and Medicare paying one thing in particular and and private insurance companies paying a lot more for 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 the same thing because they don't have the same clout the federal government has. So, you've got that in Maryland. But they also, uh, in more recent years, moved to something called global budgeting, in which uh, hospitals actually have a budget. They're given a budget, and they're told this is what you've got to operate with. You know, there's a lot that goes into determining what that budget is, but it's enough to keep the doors open and and uh, people in the communities being served and. Not profiteering. It doesn't doesn't allow for that. So that's something that we hope a lot of other states will pay attention to and begin to emulate.
0: Yeah. And as you say, most states used to have rate setting. I know here in Massachusetts, that was kind of the norm, and at least in the 70s and 80s. And then the HMOs came in, and the promise was, well, we don't need rate setting because we have these big insurance companies with bargaining clout, and we're going to negotiate with all these hospitals low rates and they did for a short period of time, they were also implementing some of the worst patient management practices at the same time. But then hospitals all consolidated and suddenly that model doesn't work for squeezing hospitals so much. So yeah, I think most of us would agree that a Maryland style system is probably the the best short of Medicare for all for doing a bit of cost control, but obviously they still have uninsured folks. They still have underinsured folks they've alleviated maybe a bit sort of premium increases and cost increases, but they're still not great. So we do, we need to keep up the push for Medicare for all as well. And, you know, we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how the Medicare for all bills are being introduced this week in Congress. So I I guess I wanted to ask you, if we were to implement a Medicare for all system this year, how would that change how hospitals kind of operate and how many of the things you'd describe in the, the documentary would be different if we just changed the financing system, which, you know, we would have the same exact hospitals, uh, maybe the same CEOs, the same bad guys, quote unquote, but uh, would they not be bad guys anymore with different incentives or?
2: Well, you know, if you, if you had Medicare for all today, or this, if it, if it could happen that the bills that, as you noted, are going to be reintroduced in the house and the Senate could be enacted, you, you would have the beginning in across the country, of systems that or, or hospitals that operate like they do in Maryland, because in both the House version of the bill and the Senate version of the bill, you have global budgeting, uh, and you you have under Medicare for All, every you know the Medicare program, Medicare would would pay for everyone's care. I mean that's that's the single payer in Medicare for All. So you would you would solve that problem. What, what the bills would do beyond what Maryland has, of course, is assure universal care, universal coverage, uh, universal access to care and uh, a means of making sure that people have access to quality care when they need it. And they're not subject to prior authorization of the whims and the, the, the demands of shareholders on insurance company executives. So, uh, yes, while what Maryland has done is extraordinarily important and worthy of emulation by all the other states, it doesn't get us to where we ultimately need to be. And that's probably uh, something that will absolutely have to take place at the federal level.
1: Yeah. it's It strikes me as the difference between a, a cure and a harm reduction measure, right? So what, what's happening in Maryland is a kind of a harm reduction measure, right? We're in a harmful system and we're trying to make things better for the folks who are trapped in that system. But like Ben said, right, we can't stop um, until we actually have a system that, that works for all of us. Yeah,
2: that's for sure. That's for sure. You can't. You've got to understand and appreciate what they've done in Maryland, but understand, like you said, there's more than has to be done for us to have a, a healthcare system in this country.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So to to change gears for a moment here, I just wanted to talk. I found this old interview with you and Amy Goodman, um, right from the time that Michael Moore's Sicko came out, which of course took on the healthcare industry. It was a documentary or whatever. And I saw some parallels here. And so one of the things that you were saying in that interview is that you actually headed up the PR offensive against the campaign, against the movie Sicko and against Michael Moore. And so now that you've made your own documentary exposing the American hospital system. Are there a bunch of hospital goons in a room somewhere thinking, how do we get rid of this Wendell Potter guy? <laughs> and do you think like, I mean, what do you think that the hospital industry's uh, PR offensive might look like responding to this movie?
2: Well, I would say it would more than likely be fairly muted and uh, you, you won't be shocked. We do not have the same budget that Michael Moore had to what? make a movie. So what? Uh, it's probably not going to get quite as much attention as as Sicko got. We can hope, but I doubt they'll be uh, throwing buckets of money at us to try to shut us down. But I do think that we will get some notice. We've had screenings across the country in many, many cities. We're going to be having some additional screenings on Capitol Hill later this spring and summer. And the movie will soon be going to video on demand. so It's going to be available for a lot of folks. So I think that we're we're going to be seeing a lot of eyeballs on this movie, and hopefully it'll open a lot of uh, open up a lot of eyes. People understand healthcare uh, from a, a perspective they probably haven't stopped to think about very much. The hospitals, the hospital industry, will not like this movie. However, it does note that there are some good guys.
1: Yeah, uh, there, yeah. There,
2: there are some places where. Hospitals are doing the right thing, and I think uh, that's important to note I don't know that I could say the same thing about insurance companies to mm-hmm. be honest.
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair All
0: right, and well, I, I was gonna say briefly that um, As you've as you discussed in the in the movie, some of what hospitals are doing the cost their their high costs are because of actually insurance companies because of how they have to deal with insurance companies and that drives up administrative costs, but They do have on their, on top of that, they have their own kind of jacked up prices or sort of price extortionism. I know here in Massachusetts, the attorney general did a big report on kind of the costs of hospital monopoly. Could you just briefly, we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but talk about, you know, how much of this, these really high hospital costs is because of, you know, basically dealing with insurance companies and how much of it is their own sort of profiteering and it's just because they can, and they're big enough, but.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you, you mentioned that. It's been estimated, and Don Berwick, um, who used to run the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, he's long been an advocate for reform and a champion of, of single-payer health care, has noted, and it's not his figure, but he's used this pretty often, that about 31%, if not more, of what we spend in this country on health care goes to administrative functions, that stuff that doesn't get us well. And that's a big part of the problem uh, or the story with hospitals. They they Hospitals like doctor doctors offices have to have people on staff who do nothing more than deal with insurance companies day in and day out multiple insurance companies you have a few obviously a few big ones but they have a multitude of different permutations of health plans that require a huge staff of people to deal with and um, so that's that's one of the problems if you've got rid of that layer of unnecessary administrative burden in this country, you could see hospital prices coming down. And I think you would. But it's, it's a big part of the problem. The other, though, is that in this country, we've had this belief that the free market can do no wrong. It can cure all of our ills. So just let the free market work its magic. And that's not going to happen in healthcare. There certainly is a part of what we're seeing here. That is great. You've got people who've graduated from business schools who now run these companies and they've been trained to maximize revenue and profits. That's That's what they do. They see these as businesses rather than entities that were formed when they first were created in this country. I'm in Philadelphia, the first one was here in Philadelphia, Ben Franklin opened the first hospital. There was a, a mission to care for people. And what we've seen is that a lot of these executives have, they don't even acknowledge that that's part of their mission anymore.
0: Right, and that reminds me of a, an anecdote. I the, We were talking about the Hospital Corporation of America, the this big for-profit chain. And uh, my understanding is that historically, emergency rooms are actually kind of money losers for most hospitals. They would make money on other departments and kind of lose money in the emergency rooms. So one of the things that HCA did, uh, to your point about just kind of getting business people in there to maximize profits, is that they started uh, turning away patients from their emergency rooms who did not have an emergency condition. They'd say, well, this is not an emergency condition. You should get health insurance and go to a normal, go see your primary care doctor. And they also started aggressively upcoding and billing insurance companies and especially medicare probably more than you you can justify billing for a, a particular visit or stay and then once they made their er's profitable by doing these things and a few other things they started putting billboards on highways saying how short their wait times are actually advertising trying to drive people to their er and this is you know one of just an anecdote of how you can kind of make a hospital department profitable but really kind of on the backs of patients in the worst possible way. So
2: You're exactly right. ER care in this country is, is a mess in so many different ways. Not only is it expensive, but uh, one thing that has been a problem with surprise bills is that uh, people will go to a hospital if they have health insurance. The hospital they assume is in network, but an ER doc might not be. Or an anesthesiologist might not be, a radiologist might not be.
1: Why is it always the anesthesiologist? <laughs> Why is it always the anesthesiologist who just has his completely just like a separate gig going, you
2: know, like- and a very good gig going. I'll yeah, take, <laughs> a lot of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, maybe they mm-hmm. could, you know, you know, I prefer to have someone if they're going to put me down. Put me right. Like, <laughs> you you want to get back up again. Want to get the, back up? That's yeah. Like, <laughs> Speaking of Ronald Reagan, I think it was someone reminded me that when he was, I guess, being treated after being shot in Washington, he said, "At least I hope one of you is Republican." Okay. Um, <laughs>
1: Wow. I so hope the opposite every time I go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> all right. So uh, thank you so much for for joining us. And we're all excited to watch this documentary. Um,
1: Ooh, yes. And we're going to be sending out an invitation. If you get on our Healthcare Now email list, Wendell is going to be joining some of our buddies in New Jersey who are from the New Jersey Universal Healthcare Coalition, I believe, in June. And so we'll be sending out an invite for you to join Wendell there. If you want to continue this conversation, shout out to New Jersey. Love y'all. And we did want to talk a little bit about that Bill introduction really quick.
0: Right. So if you're watching this on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Um, This is airing live and actually the two Medicare for All bills in Congress who are going to be introduced by Pramila Jayapal in the House and Bernie Sanders in the Senate are going to be introduced this uh, Thursday, I believe. No, this this Wednesday, May 17th. And so we are in the midst of obviously a a massive nationwide effort to get reps and senators to sign on as original co-sponsors of the bill. So if you're getting this live, the bill has not yet been dropped. I'm going to show you on the screen a link www.healthcare-now.org forward slash make the call. This is like our guide to the 2023 co-sponsor push. So this will walk you through step-by-step how you can advocate with your representative and your two senators to get them on board the bill. So please go ahead and make that push. And if you're listening to this on audio, uh, on a podcast platform, it might be that the bill introduction is passed by the time this airs. We still need your help because after the original co-sponsors have signed on, then comes the real work where we have to, it's, it's harder to get the sort of, the low-hanging fruit is gone, all of, the, <laughs> all of the more supportive reps and senators have signed on, and now we have to have like the harder, uh, longer, in-depth conversations with uh, reps and senators who are, have not yet signed on to the bill.
1: But making that initial call is always the best first step. And I just want to put in a plug for that toolkit that Ben and I created. We used that toolkit in our first meeting with Susie Lee. Uh, Nevada, Rep Susie Lee, with our friend Jill Parkinson from TikTok, who is a constituent of Susie Lee's. And sure enough, we used all those great tips in that toolkit, and we had a terrific meeting with her healthcare aid. So we're getting moving here.
0: That's right. Use your healthcare stories and then have an escalating series of tactics. We'll we'll show you the way how to get your rep and center on board, <laughs> even if you think they are fascists, like someone in our uh, Facebook mm, commentary, that's, which that's
1: I, Marlena, I could. I uh, completely
0: understand. I completely understand. <laughs> but we, we have moved legislators who you, who we thought were unmovable with the right organizing tactics. So yeah. Marlena lives <laughs> with
1: me in Corpus Christi, so she's <laughs> talking specifically about Cornyn and Cruz. So. All right. Maybe you're right.
0: <laughs> Maybe you're right. <laughs> All right. Well, I, Wendell, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, uh, giving us your time. And this is an awesome documentary. So thank you for your role in making it as well.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you guys for the toolkit and all y'all do. It's essential work. So it's an honor to, to be on your show and to be a part of the work you're all doing.
1: Wendell, thank Pleasure. you so
0: much. We will get there. And uh, I also want to thank our podcast team without whom we could not make this uh, show. Our podcast manager is Angelique Davis. Our show notes writer is Jerry Katz and our audio editor for this episode was Irina Budanova. So don't forget you know, like this episode, subscribe to the Medicare for All podcast on your favorite platform. This show is a project of the Healthcare Now Education Fund, which is our non-lobbying arm. If you want to support our work, you can donate at our website, healthcare-now.org. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Stay safe, stay dangerous.